Let's have a, a word of prayer before we get into our study this morning. So I invite you to bow your, your heads and bow your hearts with me at this time. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your wonderful love and care for us. We thank you for this Sabbath day that we've uh, has been set apart so that we can come together and worship thee in, in spirit and in truth and praise your holy name. Father, we thank you for the many blessings we've received in the past week and for your watch care. We humbly ask for the Holy Spirit to be given to us as we seek your will, as we search your word. We wish to be ready for the battle that's on the horizon. So we ask for the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and, and cleanse us and prepare us. We also lift up before you, Father, those who are sick and ill. We pray that you will be very near to them. Be with those who may be discouraged and strengthen them. May we be uh, helpful to them in any way that we can. And Lord, give me the words to speak this morning. May they be your words, not my own. It's a very important topic and we wish to understand it. So please give me the words to speak. And we thank you so much for Jesus and all that he has done and he is doing for us in heaven, preparing a people to meet him face to face. We thank you for hearing this prayer and answering it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, we're continuing the study from the series that I had entitled, This is My Body. We looked at defining who the church is, who and what the church is, and how it is to be organized. And we're in the last part now of, of what is the purpose of the church. And I've entitled it, On the March. This particular sermon or study uh, I have entitled, Battle Ready. Battle Ready. Did you know, friends, that there is going to be a final exam for the people of God? Did you know that? Since the fall of Lucifer, it has been the Lord's plan to test His people's fidelity and their loyalty. You see, he does that because he's preparing a people for this final test, for this final battle. The Bible tells us that he created this world in six days, and he found it to be very good. He created Adam and Eve, and he placed them in a beautiful garden to tend to. He gave them a test, even though they were created perfect, and they were given all things here that were good, and a beautiful garden, they had a test. They could eat from any tree of the garden, save one. And what happened? The Bible tells us there in Genesis that they failed the test. And so, we are here today, aren't we, friends? We're coming around full circle from that time in the garden to be tested again as God's professed people. Were you aware that when the Lord delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt that He tested them just before they were allowed to enter the promised land? And so too will the Lord test His people before He returns to take them to the promised land of heaven and a new earth. There will be a final exam that all have to pass to enter there. And we need to be battle ready for that final test. We look back in the Old Testament, we learn very many valuable lessons. The Lord brought His people out of the bondage of Egypt to His holy mountain. And after pouring out His Spirit upon them, reminding them of His commandments, thus empowering them as His church, He had them head towards the, the Jordan River. They were in numbers estimated at Three to five million people. I, I've seen estimates as high as, as ten million. And they had all their flocks with them. They had all their possessions, or most of their possessions anyway. They also had the spoils of Egypt with them. And the Lord wanted to fulfill His promises, you see, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Because they were faithful to the covenant. They kept their end by faith, friends. And God kept His. So he was bringing the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to the promised land. And they came to the Jordan and the Lord tells them to take the land. And we read it. 
in Deuteronomy chapter 1, beginning with verse 6, says, The Lord our God spake unto us in Horeb, saying, Ye have dwelt long enough in this mount. Turn you and take your journey, and go to the mount of the Amorites, and unto all the places nigh thereunto, in the plain, in the hills, and in the vale, and in the south, and by the sea, by the seaside, to the land of the Canaanites, and unto Lebanon, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Notice what he says here in verse 8. He says, Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land, which the Lord swear unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give unto them and to their seed after them. So, did they go rushing into the promised land to take it as the Lord had bid them to? Being obedient to His commands? Well, no. They hesitated. And they wanted to get a good look for themselves before making a decision. You know, they hesitated. I remember when I was teaching my, my children how to drive. They'd reach that age and we would go out and... and uh, I'd let them drive and I was teaching them and, and I, I would explain to them when they make a decision, they need to act on that decision when they're driving because hesitation will kill you. If you start to pull out in front of somebody, unless you have time to stop, you better get on it. This is what I would tell them. Much better to just wait until the way is clear, but if you make a decision, you, you better do it. Because more times than not, hesitation will kill. And here they come, the, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they come to the Jordan River, and the Lord says, Go in and possess the land. And they hesitated. And they talked among themselves, and they wanted to get a, a good look for themselves before they actually decided whether they were going to obey God or not. And God's very patient with us, isn't He? Amazingly so. And upon the approval of the Lord, they, they chose twelve spies, one leader from each tribe, to go into this land and check it out. To go scope out the land. And what did they find? The land was flowing with Milk and honey. What, what do you think of when, when you hear that expression, milk and honey? You know, I think it meant much more to them back then, uh, really, than it does to us today. We just go to the, the grocery store or the supermarket, you know, and we, we purchase <laughs> what, we, what we need. But back then, in an agricultural society, uh, people raised cattle for themselves. And if you came across a beehive, I mean, I don't know that there were any uh, people who uh, had their own beehives. Well, that was a blessing from God. I mean, they didn't have the refined sugars and, and things that you find today to sweeten your meals. Honey was, was uh, an incredible blessing. And if you, you had milk, that meant that you had cattle and, and people were recognized, uh, you know, their stature in the community by the number of cattle that they had. And so here was a land that was flowing with milk and honey. It meant a tremendous blessing that you would find in this land. It was a very good land. There wasn't a problem with the land. The problem was with the people who dwelt in the land. We go to the book of Numbers. Numbers uh, 13, and let's begin with verse 28. Let's look at this. Numbers 13, verse 28. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land. Here's the report that they're giving, these spies. They're saying, the people that are in that land, they're strong, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. God had mentioned those things, and he said, Take the land. Here, go to those places, take the land, and drive them out. And they're reporting, yeah, 
These people are there. Verse 30, And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. What was Caleb expressing? What had had moved Caleb to make such statements? Caleb had, through through time and his experience with what he had seen of the Lord and his commitment to God, he, he was battle-ready. He had that faith in God to do whatever the Lord had said to do. He knew that the Lord would be, would be with him. Let's just obey God and do what he's asked us to do. He is with us. We're well able to overcome it, he said. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. So here you have someone who is established in the faith, very strong in the faith, committed totally to God, has learned to be battle-ready for whatever the Lord sets before them. He's trying to encourage God's people to obey God and He's treated as what? An alarmist, as someone who's out of their mind. I want you also to notice that here you had 12 spies and the vast majority in the church did not want to do God's will. It was 10 to 2. You had Caleb and Joshua who were faithful, who were battle ready, ready to do whatever the Lord had said of these spies I'm speaking of. And you had ten of them that were full of doubt, did not want to do it. And so what do they do? Look at verse 31. They said, But the men that went up with him said, We we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched under the children of Israel, saying... The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. What are they doing? They're heaping all kinds of doubts upon it. There's no way. They're trying to gain um, favor with the people of God, pulling them onto their side, filling their hearts and their minds with doubt. Here you had Caleb and Joshua encouraging God's people. We have God on our side. We can do whatever He asks us to do. They understood that when God asks us to do something, He enables us to do it. And here you have people within His own his own people here of Israel bringing up an evil report about the land. Verse 33, And there we saw the giants the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Unbelievable. So there's a delineation here. There's a line drawn, and you see that you had two out of twelve of the spies that were battle-ready. They had been... uh, experiencing righteousness by faith in God as he worked with them from Egypt all the way out here. They come to the the land of promise. God tells them to take the land. They go in, they spy it out, and they become discouraged. It's amazing, amazing. And so here they are. They're at the the promised land. They're bringing up all these excuses. Isn't this what we often do? I don't want to say often, but don't we do this at times? The Lord tells us, you can overcome this. You can do it. And we say, no, let me scope it out first. And we kind of tiptoe around the edges. And then we come back and say, oh, it's too big for us. There's no way we can do it. But when you have the Lord on your side, friends... You can overcome anything, isn't that true? And here are these people. They'd forgotten all about the God who delivered them so many times from being destroyed, especially from the Egyptians at the Red Sea. 
They hearkened to the ten spies who, who grew more defiant than ever at the words of Caleb and, and Joshua also. The two spies who remembered the Lord and, and they had faith in, the, in His Word and they, they had that experience that they gained. They were battle-ready people. Two out of twelve. There's a statement by Sister White who, who tells us that when the time comes, there is not one in ten who will be ready for this final conflict. It's about the same percentages, isn't it? In fact, those people there, they became so outraged at these two faithful witnesses that they picked up stones to stone them. And like I said, friends, history will be repeated here. There will be a test. And who's going to be the worst enemies of the faithful? Their former brethren. The Lord then instructed the body to remove themselves into the wilderness. And I want you to notice that this instruction from God was the final exam for these people that they had to pass before they could go into the promised land. So God was giving a final exam for them right here and it was determined that they were not battle ready. So He brings them to the promised land. He says, go in and possess it. They say, well, we're not so sure. Let us scope it out. And He says, okay. So they send 12 spies in. They come back. 10 of the spies say, well, there's no way we can do it. We can't overcome their cities, their people, their giants there. We're too small. We're like grasshoppers. And so God says, well, I want you to go into the wilderness then. Deuteronomy 1 verse 40. But as for you, turn you and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. This is what he tells them. And this was a test for them right here, right now. From Patriarchs and Prophets, page 391. Page 391. In commanding them to retire from the land of their enemies, God tested their apparent submission and proved that it was not real. So what she says. He commands them to go into the wilderness, right? We just read it there in Deuteronomy 1 verse 40. This was a test He was testing their apparent submission. And what happened? It it was proved that it wasn't real. She says, They knew that they had deeply sinned in allowing their rash feelings to control them and in seeking to slay the spies who had urged them to obey, to obey God. But they were only terrified to find that they had made a fearful mistake, the consequences of which would prove disastrous to themselves. Their hearts were unchanged. That's the key, isn't it? To be battle ready, you got to have a changed heart. Their hearts were unchanged and they only needed an excuse to occasion a similar outbreak. This presented itself when Moses, by the authority of God, commanded them to go back into the wilderness. So here was their test. And so what did they do? They obeyed the Lord, they passed the exam, and they retreated into the wilderness. Is that what they did? No, that's not what they did. So far we see the theme of an unchanged heart here, don't we? An unchanged heart. When I mean an unchanged heart, I mean one that has not been changed by the Holy Spirit. It's going to do its own will. So what was the will now? Well, they refused the command of the Lord again. And they decided that they would now go into the land of the promise and possess it. Oh, really? So God brings you here to this promised land. He says, go in and possess it. You refuse. Then he says, okay, I want you to go into the wilderness then. No, we changed our mind. We're not going into the wilderness. I mean, that's a wilderness. (laughs) That's hot, dusty, dry, no food. and We're going to go into the land of promise now. Does God just say, oh, okay, whatever you want. Deuteronomy Chapter 1, verse 41. 
Then ye answered and said unto me, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight, according to all that the Lord our God commanded us. And when ye had girded on every man his weapons of war, ye were ready to go up into the hill. And the Lord said unto me, Say unto them, Go not up, neither fight, for I am not among you, lest ye be smitten before your enemies. So I spake unto you, and you would not hear, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord, and went presumptuously up into the hill. Lord says, go in, take the land, possess it. No, we're not going to do that. Okay, go into the wilderness. No, okay, we'll go into the land and take the land now. Back to Patriarchs and Prophets, page 392. When God had bidden them go up and take the land, they had refused. And now when He directed them to retreat, they were equally rebellious. They determined to seize upon the land and possess it. It might be that God would accept their work and change His purpose towards them. So here we're starting to see who was battle ready and who wasn't. Who was it that was battle ready? They were the ones who wanted to obey God. Whatever God asked them to do, they were ready to do it. And that's what God's trying to do with us, friends. He's trying to get us ready. Whatever our trials may be, He wants us to be ready. He puts us through trials so that we may learn about ourselves, confess, and repent, and overcome those things. So God can be with us. He told the children of Israel, Here, I'm not with you. Don't go do that. I can't sanction disobedience. They said, You know, maybe we can gain God's favor. We'll obey Him now. The first thing He wanted us to do, go in and possess the land. And maybe when we go and we possess that land... He's going to accept this work of our hands and change his attitude towards us. This is what she's saying. She says, God had made it their privilege and their duty to enter the land at the time of his appointment. But through their willful neglect, that permission had been withdrawn. Satan had gained his object in preventing them from entering Canaan, and now he urged them on to do the very thing in the face of the divine prohibition which they had refused to do when God required it. There are principles here that we need to pick up on and learn, friends. This is how Satan works. So they chose to disobey God again and now fight for the land. And that's not what the Lord wanted. So they had shown that they were not ready. They were not ready to go into the promised land. That was the test, remember? So he said, go into the wilderness. No, we're not going to go into the wilderness either. We'll go into the land and possess it. What was God's design in all of this? What was the test about? Wasn't it about obedience? If they had obeyed the Lord to begin with, they would have crossed the Jordan and possessed the land that was promised. But they didn't obey the Lord. And they failed their final exam. And I'll tell you, you read there in the Old Testament, all those who were 20 years of age and above, from that time on, except for Joshua and Caleb, would not enter the promised land, but would die in the wilderness. Friends, we have a similar final exam coming coming soon, involving obedience to the commandments of the Lord. No, there were some who, who died in the wilderness that will be saved. Moses died and was resurrected and taken to heaven. Moses' sister Miriam died. So there were some who passed in the wilderness, but that's the point. See? Corporate accountability. 
Joshua and Caleb were very faithful, and they always fought for the Lord. But we have a final exam coming, friends, and this exam is an individual one to see if you remain a member of His church, that church that will possess the promised land. And something, you know, we learn at a very young age, I think, is that when you take an exam, you have to take it for yourself. Somebody else cannot take the test for you. The Lord told Ezekiel this. We all have to pass the final exam for ourselves. Somebody else cannot pass it for us. Ezekiel 14, verse 14. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, that's the land, they should deliver, but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. And verse 20. Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter, they shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. And when he means by their righteousness, he's talking about righteousness by works, he's talking about righteousness by faith. So your pastor can't save you, your church can't save you, your father can't save you, it's individual between you and God. Your husband can't save you or your wife can't save you. They can't take the test for you. So we're individually going to be tested. Now, what is the issue of the final test? This is why it's so important for us to know and understand end-time prophecy. It tells us about the test. It's preparing us. It's wanting us to be battle-ready. And what is the the message of the, rev- the, the the remnant church. It's Revelation chapter 14, isn't it? It's these three angels and their messages. It's found in verse 9. We're very familiar with this. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. This is the final test. It's the final test between the church of Satan and the church of Christ. Who is that church of Christ? Verse 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. They are doers of God's word. They are obedient. They are like Caleb. They are like Joshua. They will enter the promised land. And so the issue is very simply this. The issue is whether you're going to obey the commandments of men or whether you're going to obey the commandments of God. Now, we are to obey the commandments of men as long as they do not violate the law of God in a civil society. But if the commandments or laws of men require us to violate the law of God, then what are we to do, friends? We're not to obey. And that's what Peter said when they commanded the apostles not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. He said, well, whether it seems right to you, whether we should obey you or God, you can decide that, but we have to obey God rather than than you. (laughs) In other words, he's saying that's your choice. Our choice is to obey God. So when the commandments of men violate the laws of God, and that's what is pictured here in Revelation 14, verses 9 to 12, then we're to obey God, aren't we? And that's what the worship of the beast and receiving the mark of the beast and and worshiping the image of the beast is all about, whether you keep God's commandments or not. And that is the issue all the way through the book of Revelation, actually. 
And when that issue comes, you're going to be tested individually. And you may be tested all alone. I'll tell you, if you're tested all alone, your wife or your husband or your father or your mother or your pastor or, or, or your church will not be able to pass the test for you. You're going to have to make a decision. And you'll have to pass the test yourself. That's why it's important to be battle-ready. And we know this from the words of Jesus. Jesus said that in the last days it would be like it was in the days of Noah. In Matthew 24, Jesus said that it would be like it was in the days of Noah. Remember? He said like in the days of Noah. And in the days of Noah, were there many people or just a few people who were on God's side concerning the end of the world by a flood? Just a few people were obedient to the Lord. And so it's going to be that way again. You know, back there in Noah's time, Noah was given this message. He was called a fanatic, wasn't he? People told him he was deceived. You see, in those days, it had never rained before. And they told him he was a deluded enthusiast and he was an alarmist. They told him that he couldn't possibly be right and the whole world be wrong. That's what they told Noah. Well, who was right and who was wrong? (laughs) The whole world was wrong. And not only were they just wrong, they drowned for being wrong. They did not pass their final exam and it cost them eternal life. When you study religious history, you find that over and over and over again. The great majority in religious things has virtually always been wrong. You know, one time Martin Luther, who was standing alone for the truth, he said to his opponents, he said, the very reason that I am standing alone for what I am standing for should make you afraid. So, beloved, I want you to always remember that numbers mean nothing in religious controversies. If we're in the majority uh, of Christendom, uh, we need to stop and take a look and say, hmm, is the majority right? Because throughout history, the majority has usually been wrong. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5. Let me share this, page 136. When God's wrath is poured out upon the earth, who will then be able to stand? Now is the time for God's people to show themselves true to principle. True to what? True to principle. When the religion of Christ is most held in contempt, when His law is most despised, then should our zeal be the warmest and our courage and firmness the most unflinching. And you've heard this before. To stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us. To fight the battles of the Lord when champions are few. This will be our test. At this time we must gather warmth from the coldness of others. Courage from their cowardice and loyalty from their treason. The nation will be on the side of the great rebel leader. The test will surely come. Did you hear that? The nation will be on the side of the great rebel leader. She says to stand for truth and righteousness no matter if it costs us our life is what she's saying. This is our test. And when will this happen? Well, let's go to Revelation 13. You'll read when it's going to happen. The founders of our country wrote a constitution in which they stated that Congress was to make no law concerning the establishment of religion. It was one of the very first things that they put into law. But according to the prophecy here in Revelation 13, the time is going to come when we're going to have a religious law enforcing worship in this country, friends. 
Revelation 13, verse 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Let me ask you, does worship have to do with religion? <laughs> well, sure. This is a religious law. And there, and there are going to be some teeth in it, right? What's going to happen if you don't worship the way they say? Exactly. There's going to be a death decree, isn't there? So this is the final exam, and, and what is the issue? The issue is the law of God versus the laws of men. That's the issue. And so basically, the law of God is one law, isn't it? Has ten parts. James 2 and verse 10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Now, do you suppose the devil knows that he keeps you from eternity if he can get you to just break one of God's commandments? Well, of course he knows that. The devil studied the Ten Commandments for thousands of years to find out which one of them would be the easiest to persuade the human race to break. Now, the devil, he's subtle. He's crafty. And what he does is convince people that by breaking the law of God, you know what? They're actually keeping it. And this is how he convinced the people of God to nail Jesus to the cross. Did you know that? They truly believed that they were doing God's service in killing His Son. And so the devil gets people turned backwards to where they call evil good and good evil, all the while believing that they're doing the will of God. And he has to do it subtly, friends, because God has given us all a measure of faith. And he's given us intelligence to see our enemy if he would appear as he is. <laughs> so he works in a subtle way, especially when dealing with the law of God. For example, he doesn't say that there is no longer a Sabbath day, but that there has been an adjustment to the Sabbath day. Isn't that interesting? So let me ask you, does anything that God has said need adjustments? Malachi 3 and verse 6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. If anything, the Lord does need adjustment, he'll adjust it. <laughs> Psalms 19.7 The law of the Lord is perfect. That means it can't be improved upon, friends. It's perfect. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. Does something that's perfect need to be adjusted? Of course not. So what God has said in His law does not need adjusting. And that is what the Christian world today is deceived about. You talk to the average person about the law of God, and they say, oh yes, I keep the law of God. So you open the Bible and you read the fourth commandment, where it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And almost immediately the person says, well, how do you know which day is the Sabbath? Maybe we can't figure it out. I mean, that was a long time ago. And so, friends, it really shows how effective the subtleties of Satan really are. Did God tell us to keep the Sabbath holy knowing that we couldn't figure out what day it was? And so you say, okay... Do you know which day Jesus rose from the dead? And they say, oh yes, I know. Well, what day was that? Well, we keep Sunday in honor of the resurrection. Well, how do you know what day is Sunday? <laughs> you know? But you say, okay, so you know what the first day of the week is then because Sunday is the first day of the week. Jesus was raised the first day of the week according to Luke 24 or Matthew 28, or John 20. So you know which day is the first day of the week. So if you can figure out which day is the first day of the week, can you figure out which day is the seventh day of the week? Um, you ask people. 
You know what day Jesus was crucified on? Well, of course I know which day Jesus was crucified on. That was Good Friday. So you read to him Luke 23 through Luke 24, and you'll notice there's that passage of Scripture that the Sabbath, according to the commandment, is the day in between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. It's the day in between. And so, friends, you can't make a mistake if you just read the Bible. But people will say that the Sabbath commandment has been adjusted. But God said, I'm not going to change. And so the Lord has a controversy with the Christian world today, doesn't he? Just as he did right there, the border of the promised land. And the great controversy is over who should change. The devil wanted God to change his law. He wanted to be a member of the Godhead. You can read about that in Isaiah 14. But the first commandment says, You shall not have any other gods before me. Well, the devil wanted that commandment changed so that he could be a part of the Godhead. And he was willing to kill God to do it. But the Lord said, No. I'm not going to change the law. In fact, that's the only answer that God can give. Because the law of God... The Ten Commandments are actually a transcript of His very character. And that's what He means by saying, I change not. God cannot change. He is pure. He is perfect. But the devil's been fighting God and His government and His law ever since God said He cannot change it. And he's become a skillful general in deceiving men to think that they're keeping God's law when they're actually breaking it. And that's the issue in the final contest, friends. The final struggle. The the final exam that will come upon the people of this world. It's over the law of God. Is there something wrong with it that needs to be adjusted? Well, if there isn't something wrong with it, then the question is, Are we keeping it or are we breaking it the way God gave it? And that's the final issue. Are God's people battle ready? And that's what the mark of the beast is all about. That's what the image of the beast is all about. is making religious laws and requiring people to worship in the way other men tell them to. And when is this going to happen? Well, friends, it happens when a religious law is made, specifically in the United States, that tells you when and how to worship. There will be a law made that will honor Sunday as the Bible Sabbath, because that's the majority, isn't it? And there will be a law that will cause all to worship on that day instead of the seventh day, as God has said. And God has told us in advance, friends, so that we can prepare for that final exam. So that we can be battle ready. How are we going to pass the exam? Well, in order to pass this test, the body of believers must be refreshed by what the Bible calls the latter rain. And in order to receive this refreshing rain from the Lord, the body must be prepared by what it says is the early rain. Notice this, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 214. Not one of us will ever receive the seal of God while our characters have one spot or stain upon them. That's the goal, isn't it? Is to reach that point. Notice what she says. It is left with us to remedy the defects in our characters, to cleanse the soul temple of every defilement. Then the latter rain will fall upon us as the early rain fell upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. The Bible says, friends, that God has given to every man a measure of faith. Romans 12, 3. Faith is a decision, isn't it? And you can choose to exercise all the faith you have and you can say, Lord, I choose to believe that you can get me battle ready to pass this final exam. I didn't read verse 16 
of Revelation 13. It says the time is going to come when you will not be able to buy or sell unless you get the mark of the beast. Well, how are you going to eat if you can't buy or sell? How are you going to check Facebook if you can't buy or sell? All these things we're doing now, friends, will be taken away because you're going to have to make a choice. But how are you going to eat? I don't know. But I'll tell you what I do know. When I read my Bible, God fed millions of people out there in the wilderness for 40 years. There are no stores there. They didn't have to buy food even one time. <laughs> right. So God can supply food for you. Even if you cannot buy or sell. But you're going to have to make a decision. Say, Lord, I'm on your side of the question and I'm going to obey you no matter what happens. And that involves a decision, friends. And nothing short of genuine faith will get you through the testing time that's coming. And faith comes as a result of hearing the Word of God, Paul says in Romans 10, 17. This is what is is defined as the early rain preparation. So friends, are you studying your Bible? Are you memorizing God's promises? Well, if you haven't been, maybe this would be a good time to make yourself a resolution and say, Lord, help me to memorize at least one verse a day or at least one a week. And if you're going to get through the testing time that's coming, you're going to have to do more than come to church. Whether it's through the internet or not. Or physically. You've got to do more than that. You're going to have to actually memorize some things in the Word of God. Memorize the promises of God. Notice this. Great Controversy, page 594. None but those who have fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible will stand through the last great conflict. To every soul will come the searching test. Shall I obey God rather than men? Who's going to stand? Those that have done what? They have fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible. You know what a fortress is, don't you? A fortress is a building that is heavily guarded. The, the mind that is fortified... How do you fortify your mind? By knowing and living the truths that are found in the Bible. So are you memorizing promises? Are you memorizing your Bible? Do you know that the Word of God is powerful? And friends, when you memorize it, divine power actually comes into your life. And this may not sound like much, friends, but... Early rain preparation consists of being obedient in the little things. And that requires an active faith. Faith is a verb. (laughs) Right? Requires action. Ministry of Healing. The book Ministry of Healing, page 490. It is through our failure to endure tests that come to us in little things that the habits are molded, the character misshaped, And when the greater tests come, they find us unready. So it's the little things. That's what she's saying here. If we fail in little tests that come to us along the way, then when the bigger tests come, we're not going to be ready. I had a habit in school of just skimming by during class each day, convincing myself that I'd make up for it on the final test. I became very confident in myself because I did make up for it many times on the final test. And actually, I never really studied much. I'd get A's and B's, so that led to my overconfidence, you see. And it was a different story when I went to Purdue University. I had not taken the time, you see, to be grounded in the little things, and it caught up to me in a big way. And there are a lot of students that do that. They don't even understand what is going on with the daily work, you see. They have to get their mom or their dad or or a companion or a tutor or somebody to help them get their daily homework finished. And they convince themselves that they're going to study and make up for it on the final test. 
And that's actually preparing them for a big disappointment. So when the final test comes, that tutor or your mother or your father or whoever helped you to do all your homework, they're not going to be there to help you take that final test. So if you're going to make it on the final test, you need to make it on the daily work, on the little tests that are coming along the way. Does that make sense? The same is true concerning the final exam in this great controversy, friends. Instead of just looking at the end and saying, well, I'm going to have to be ready someday for a big final test when they will tell me that I cannot buy or sell, that I'm going to be killed if I keep the commandments of God. Oh, most Adventist friends, I will tell you, are saying, well, we're just kind of hovering and sitting, we're occupying until the Sunday law. That's a fatal mistake. That will cost you your eternal life. You will not be battle ready. If you wait till then, you will fail the test. You see, the Lord has given us time now to get battle ready for that exam then, which is on the horizon. So whether I am passing the test that I'm having now is going to determine someday whether I'm going to pass the final. Now I know I've introduced something that really gets scary, doesn't it? <laughs> We're all being tested in our and are we always passing all the tests that we're having? No, we're not. Well, what are we going to do if we're having tests from day to day and we're not passing them all? You see, day by day, God's looking at you and He's look, looking at me and He's making a decision. Pastor Joel is right here and if I'm going to move him over there, he needs to have this test. So I'm going to send this test to him today. Now I've simplified it, but that's really what happens. God is looking at me, and He's looking at you, and He sees where we are in our character development, and He sees where He needs to get us to in our spiritual experience. And the only way that He can get us there is to send us into some circumstance that will test our character and reveal to us our weakness so that we can remedy it. We can change or be willing to be made willing to change. From the book, The Desire of Ages, page 382. Day by day, God instructs His children. By the circumstances of the daily life, He is preparing them to act their part upon that wider stage to which His providence has appointed them. It is the issue of the daily test that determines their victory or defeat in life's great crisis. Have you ever had a teacher that said to you, look, I want you to do that assignment over? Have you ever had that happen? Does God do that? <laughs> that is exactly what God does. Except that when He takes you over the road again, you know what He does? He adds a little more pressure. He may add a few harder questions. And I think that's to get our attention focused. Exactly. Focused. From the book, My Life Today, page 92. The Lord brings His children over the same ground again and again, increasing the pressure until perfect humility fills the mind and the character is transformed. What's perfect humility? That's saying, okay, I'm going to do the Lord's will from now on, on this test. Not my own. Then your character is transformed, friends. This is what she says. Then they, they are victorious over self and in harmony with Christ in the Spirit of Heaven. And I'll tell you, friends, I'll share with you, it's an amazing fact to me that there are people, and they'll tell you, they know that they're not passing the tests from day to day, but they hope that some way when the big final exam comes, they're going to pass it. Does that make sense? Doesn't make sense to me. 
You're not going to pass the final exam at the end if you're not passing the test now. You see, the Lord wants you to learn to pass every test now. And this is the early rain experience. So every one that, that you do not pass, He brings it around to you again. So you take that again. And He'll put the pressure on a little more so you can learn from it. And if I don't pass at that time, what happens? Well, the Lord can bring me around again and with even more pressure. And what would happen if I would say, Lord, I just cannot stand this anymore and I'm not going to submit to this anymore? What happens? Well, of course, if I get so stubborn that the Lord cannot bring me around again, the Lord can say, all right, I'll let you go your own way. It's your choice, isn't it? And then you're lost. Because what's happened is you grieved away the Holy Spirit. You see, this is not an either-or situation. We either have to pass the test if we're going to be saved or we have to be lost. And it's that simple. I have to pass each test if I'm going to pass the one up the line. So it is the issue of the daily test that determines our victory or our battle readiness for that final test. And if we fail a test, we should be so happy and so thankful that the Lord doesn't say, well, I guess you're just lost. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. So he says, no, I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to let you take that assignment again so you can learn from it and pass it the next time it comes. And I'll tell you, God's a better teacher than we are. God doesn't flunk people out. He'll give you the power to get the victory. The question is, are we willing to stay in the fight and ask the Lord for help so we can have victory in our lives? There's a couple more quotes. Lift him up, page 375. God leads His people on, step by step. He brings them up to different points calculated to manifest what is in the heart. Some endure at one point, but fall off at the next. At every advanced point, the heart is tested and tried a little closer. He's polishing those jewels, friends, you see. We're jewels in His eyes. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1, page 187. Those who come up to every point and stand every test and overcome, be the price what it may, have heeded the counsel of the true witness and they will receive the latter rain and thus be fitted for translation. That's very encouraging and hopeful to me. That's exciting, actually. If you're willing to stay with the process and say, Lord, by your grace, I want to overcome, He will prepare you to pass that final exam. He will make you battle ready. And every single one of us can be an overcomer. Because God has made provision so that everybody can be an overcomer. And this is one of the most wonderful things about the gospel. In fact, I don't know if I could preach the gospel if it weren't for this. <laughs> but God has made provision so that the most sinful person and the weakest person can be an overcomer and go to heaven. God has made full provision for that. Again, from the book Lift Him Up, page 237. Provision has been made whereby every soul that is struggling under sinful practices may be made free from sin. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John one twenty nine. The Christian is not to retain his sinful habits and cherish his defects of character but he is to be renewed in the spirit of his mind after the divine similitude. Whatever may be the nature of your defects, the Spirit of the Lord will enable you to discern them, and grace will be given you whereby they may be overcome. So don't think you're in this by yourself, that you have to overcome through your own strength. The Lord is fully on your side. Isn't that wonderful? 
I mean, do you want to have this experience in your life, friends? Do you want to be an overcomer? Do you want to pass the daily tests in preparation for that final exam, that final battle? Do you want to be battle ready? I do. I want to be battle ready. And God provides the strength, the grace that's needed. So let's listen to what the Lord has to say. Let's be doers of His Word. We're on the edge of the promised land, friends. Let's not say, we will not go in. John 12, verse 35, Yet a little while is the light with you. And what does Jesus tell us to do? We are to walk. We are to walk while we have the light, lest darkness comes upon us. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of the light. Friends, I encourage you, commit yourselves to the Lord Jesus and walk in the light that prepares you to be battle ready. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for your holy word. We thank you so much for your love for us for your incredible patience with us. It's beyond understanding. And that you bring these tests to us over and over and over again, and so often we fail and we fail. But you you pick us up. You say, let's try that again. And even though it's it's harder, it requires a little more faith, we can be overcomers through the blood of Jesus. And so, Father, this day we pray that you will forgive us where we failed. Give us the grace we need to be the overcomers that you wish us to be, that we may bring glory to thy name and be, be, be battle ready to, to face this final conflict. And we thank you so much for this Sabbath day and pray that you continue to pour out blessings upon us. And throughout this coming week ahead, We meet again to worship Thee in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.